All right, good morning. Will's like extra fired up this morning because this is Aaron C. Show weekend, and he loves the Aaron C. Show. So they were out there, you know, I don't know, watching the planes, I guess, yesterday. So there you go. Uh, Hope Women's Centers, man. I mean, that's a ministry that we have supported as a church for years and years. Uh, I don't normally say this, but I mean, I'm just going to say it. It's a, it's a ministry that Beth and I support personally, financially. Uh, and it is also a great opportunity to support somebody out of our own church. So uh, Joy Wright, who is the new executive director at Hope Women's Center, uh, is actually with her husband, Jay. They are amazing people. You need to get to know them at some point. I'm, I'm hoping they can somewhat remain anonymous. But nevertheless... For their sake, but really, like they're a part of Rio, and uh, and they are doing a phenomenal job, and she's doing a phenomenal job leading this ministry. So, uh, take advantage of that, as Will said. That's a great, great opportunity to pour into something that is actually really priceless and precious here in this community. All right. So last week we started a study of the Gospel of Mark. That is to say, of the account of the life of Jesus that Mark gives to us in what we call the book or the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that Mark spends the first full half of his book just talking about who Jesus is. So that's why we're calling it Mark, the identity of Jesus. When we get to the second half, it's going to be Mark, the mission of Jesus. So it's like he's coming and going, look, we're going to talk about what he's come to do. We're going to talk about his mission and all that he's accomplished and all that he will yet accomplish. But before we do that, I've got to establish with you, Mark says, who Jesus is. And today, as we advance that argument and we come to Mark chapter 2, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Jesus is the one who alone, and that's the word to circle, can forgive sin. And I want you to know why. It's because he's God. Look, as we make our way through the story that we're going to look at today, there's a certain line of reasoning that I want to point out to you in advance, and it goes like this. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And you're like, no, no, no. Jesus claims to forgive sins. Therefore, he might be God. Yeah, just wait till we get into the story. Because he says to somebody, your sins are forgiven, and then he does something only God can do to authenticate the reality that Well, Jesus is the one who alone can forgive sin. So that's where it starts. So Jesus is the one who alone, circle word, can forgive sin. But then the second part is that as a result, we need to bring ourselves and other people to Jesus. It just follows one right out of the next. All right, so the story that we're going to look at today takes place in the little seaport town of Capernaum. I have been to Capernaum several times. Capernaum is not an active living city. People don't live there presently. It's a place that they have excavated on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. It was in the days of Jesus a very vibrant place. It was located on a trade route. Matthew, the tax collector, is found there as an example and probably did really, really well in that location. It's the hometown of the Apostle Peter. It's the hometown of his brother Andrew. But most significantly for our purposes today, it's the hometown of a paralyzed man. And we don't know the name of the man, but everybody in that town did. We don't know his age, they did. We don't know how or when he became paralyzed or for how long he suffered the state of paralysis. All those people knew everything about this guy, small town. They knew this stuff. It actually matters. All right, we don't. What we know is that he's paralyzed, and we know that paralysis back then was even more difficult in terms of suffering than it is today, and that's saying something. Paralysis, I mean, if you're just kind of going down what might be most difficult, that's got to be at or about the top of the list. And back then it was even worse. And the reason for that is obvious, isn't it? I mean, they didn't have hospitals. They didn't have rehab facilities. 
They didn't have assisted living facilities. They didn't have in-home nursing care. I mean, I don't mean to be overly graphic, but they didn't have handicapped bathrooms or any of the ways by which we're more enabled to be more discreet today in that regard than we were back then. They didn't have vehicles to get you around, handicap accessible vans and buses and cars and all that. None of that stuff. They didn't have wheelchairs, motorized or otherwise. So what that means in a practical sense is that this man's life was confined to a mat about three feet wide and about six feet long. And there he lay and he didn't get out of the house at all unless or until his four buds who we're going to read about and who I really want you to focus on today. These four guys came and they would show up and then with their arms and their hands and their feet and their legs, they would transport him out of the house. And they would do that probably pretty much every day because the only way for this guy to contribute to the household income was for him to be deposited alongside a busy road and he had his spot and put out like a bucket or something that you could put money in. And then he would beg. He would ask for money. And he would lay there all day. And then to make it worse, there was a stigma attached to the kind of suffering that paralysis brought. And so the line of thinking went something like this. Good grief, if you are suffering this profoundly, you must have really sinned big time. Like, I don't know what you did, but it was massive. And so this guy probably bought into that ideology. It's false. It's not biblical. But nevertheless, that was the general idea back in those days. And so this guy would lay on his mat day after day, night after night, staring up at the ceiling going, which one was it? Like, what exactly did I do? You know, I mean, there was that time in third grade where I pulled the chair out from that girl and then she fell like, was that it? You know, and and then I stole a yo-yo, you know, from a 7-Eleven. Was that it? Was it when I betrayed this person or when I did this, I did something really actually pretty doggone evil? Was that it? And then what's the next step in the equation? Because the poor guy's going, man, you know, if this is how I'm, I'm getting punished, if you will, if I'm cursed of life, in this life, what awaits me in the next life? Let me give you the words that defined his existence. There are several others you could add to the list, but I made a list. Dependency, humiliation, confinement. I mean, you're suffocated, right? Boredom, loneliness, frustration, shame, guilt. You're a burden, or so you think. Despair. It's all going to change when he meets Jesus, but he needs to meet Jesus. And if you're not familiar with the story, but maybe you are familiar with Jesus, just based on the facts that I've laid out so far, you know, you're probably thinking, all right, so I guess the story is going to go something like this. Jesus is on his way into town. He's traveling down the busy road. That guy's got his spot. Hopefully it's shady. But nevertheless, Jesus comes across this guy. He has compassion on him and he heals this man. That's actually not how it goes. So then you start reviewing the other options. You're like, okay, so, um, all right, maybe what happens is somebody comes to Jesus and says, the guy is by the side of the road. Would you go heal him? Jesus goes and he heals him. That's not what happens either. All right, so then Jesus must go to the man's house because that's the only other place he is. And then that's where he heals him. It doesn't happen that way either. So what happens is that his four friends come and just like they would bring him out to the side of the road, they show up at his house. They're like, dude, we are taking you to Jesus. And why are they taking him to Jesus? Because this matters not just for them, but for me and for you. Like if you're wondering what the application is, it's going to be so clear. They come to get their friend to bring him to Jesus because A, they love their friend and B, they believe that Jesus can heal him. 
that there's an answer and his name is Jesus and moved by love and by faith, they're like, dude, we're bringing you to Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 I'm binge-watching Stranger Things right now because season four is coming out on May 27. You're welcome. And they're like, well, the beauty of Netflix is you can pause that. So that's what we're going to do then. And they carry him to Jesus. But when they get there, they can't get near him because they're the last ones to show up. And it's a little house. You know, when you go to Capernaum, they're just they're little houses. You can see the, the rock walls is made of this basalt rock, like they've reconstructed, you know, like part of the neighborhood, if you will. You can see the home that they believe was Peter's home, which is almost certainly where this story took place. Great argument for that being it. So, you know, they show up at the house, and Jesus is in the house, and the house is packed out. And again, it's it's a little house. It's not big, and so it's standing room only inside of the house. People are crowding around the windows, you know, probably four or five deep, trying to see Jesus, trying to listen. People are crowded around the doorway, and there's only one, you know, probably four or five deep, and trying to do the same thing. So these guys show up with a three-foot wide and a and a six-foot-long mat, and they're buddies. So four guys, that guy on a mat, and people are like... You are not getting in. Mark says in verse 3, he says, And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they gave up and they went home. And that's the end of the story. Let's pray. It's not. You imagine how disappointing it would be if it was? Oh, well, all right, then I guess we can leave. You know, like, they don't give up. Why? They love their friend. And they just feel like, man, if we can get him in front of Jesus, Jesus has the power to heal this man. Like, you know, Capernaum was the home base of Jesus, and it was where these guys lived too. So they had heard Jesus teach and preach, and they had seen him, I don't know, maybe cleanse a leper. And, you know, like he had done amazing, miraculous things. The bulk of his ministry happens in the region of Galilee. And again, the center point of where he lives and stays and operates out of is this particular town. So he is well known in this town. And here's the thing. If you really believe that Jesus can raise someone from the dead, and that's what we're talking about with this man spiritually, as we'll see, but also physically. I know his heart's beating and his organs are working and his mind works just fine and his mouth works great. I get that, but he's not able to move and he is in the posture of death and he can't do anything to fix it. And neither can anyone else. No doctor, no not even today. If you really believe that Jesus can raise someone from the dead and you, you love that person, like, and the obstacles are something you'll deal with, right? I mean, you just you find a way is the idea. So when they encountered this obstacle of we can't get in the house, faith was like, Jesus can fix this. And love was like, we're going to find a way. And so they climb up a staircase on the side of the house. You're like, how do you know there's a staircase on the side of the house? Well, because they got up onto the roof, but also because that's the way the homes were built. So they used the roofs of these houses as patios, or really sort of like a backyard. They didn't actually have backyards. They might have like a little courtyard area behind some of the homes. You can see that when you look at the excavated ruins of these houses. But but they would use the roof as a yard. And I want you to actually think yard, because here's how they made the roofs. They're flat roofs, and after they built the stone walls out of these basalt stones there in Capernaum, they put timbers across the stone walls, and then they put mattings of branches on top of the timbers, and then they poured about a foot thick, a foot deep of mud on top of the mattings of branches, and then they planted grass. 
So when they get their buddy up onto the roof, they lay him in the grass and they're standing there and it looks like they're standing on the earth because they are standing on earth. It's the way that it went. And what they do is they start digging through with their hands. Verse 4, it says that when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening large enough to drop a three-foot-wide, six-foot-long mat down through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. That is to say, they lowered his dead body, if you will, through the earth into the grave of this house where Jesus was waiting to raise him from the dead. It's like what we do with our people, our family members, people that we love, when we bury them in faith in Christ. We lower them into the ground, do we not? In faith in the one who raises them. It's a real difference maker, but you can picture the scene in the house. I mean, Jesus is packed into this house with all of these people. And I mean, it's hot in this part of the land. And I mean, there's no cross breeze coming because all these people are crowding the windows and the door. You know, it's like, it's stuffy. The air is thick in there. I mean, the, the hygiene habits were a bit different then than they are now. So, I mean, you know, it's, there's a little bit of a scent going on. Like it's, there, it's intense. And all of a sudden, in the middle of Jesus' message, you, you hear this scratching and scraping noise coming from the roof of all places. It's like, what in the world is going on? And then little pieces of dirt start falling, and little pieces of twigs start falling, you know, like dust starts coming up. These guys are taking their robes and pulling it over their nose because they're choking and coughing down there. Like, the sermon is over at this point, and they're just like, all right. What's going on? And then all of a sudden, there's like a little shaft of light as they break through the mud that comes into the dark, dusty room, and you can see the dust and the, and the light. And it gets bigger and bigger as four pairs of hands become visible. as They rip the roof up, and then four muddy, dirty, sweaty faces. And they rip a hole big enough to drop this guy down, and then they drop him down, right? Handhold after handhold, four ropes. And I'm sure that people down there were like, you know, let me help steady this thing and make sure this poor man doesn't roll off. And, and then all of a sudden, there is this guy, and he is laying there at the feet of Jesus. And he's spotlighted, if you think about it, by the light that's streaming through now this brand new massive hole in the, in the ceiling. And then what does Jesus do? Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't look at these guys and go, what the heck are you doing? You know, like... What is the matter with you? I'm 45 minutes into a message. I've got a clean recording going, and there's no way we can edit this out. i got to redo this whole thing. We've got to have this ready for my podcast at 3 p.m. today. People are relying. By the way, you ruined Peter's roof. He's right now on the phone with a state farm agent trying to get somebody to come out. I got dirt in my eye, in the eye of the Son of God, for crying out loud. Like an eyelash, that's painful, try a twig. He doesn't look at these guys and go, guys, couldn't you just wait? How about a little patience? What if you just waited for me to finish? Eventually, I'm going to leave the house. You know, there you are, camped out, outside. Just all you got to do is wait, and I'll come to you. But instead, this He doesn't say any of those things. He's delighted with their faith. You ever done that though? Like you're feeling like the spirit of God is going, this is the time. This is the moment. You know, you've been waiting for this moment with trepidation perhaps. And you're like, 
eh, maybe tomorrow's a better idea. You know what, how about next week? I've done that. I mean, I don't like that I've done that, but I have for sure done that. When Beth and I got married, I, I was an attorney, so if you don't know the story, just forgive me. No, I've been redeemed, okay? We moved to the city of Chicago. I started working at a law firm there. There were 35 lawyers in the firm. We had the whole 13th floor of this building. Uh, but then downstairs on the third floor, there were like two offices and a little, I don't know, waiting room, basically. And because I was the new guy, I was the peon, I was the low on the totem pole guy, as I should have been, honestly. That's, that was rightfully my position. Uh, I got put down there on the third floor, and there was one other person, and he was 85 years old. He was a retired lawyer. His name was Gene Goldenson. He had been practicing law like since Moses. <laughs> they were friends, and he was a Jewish man. And, and Mr. Goldenson, because that's all I could ever call him, he's like, Tom, my dad was Mr. Goldenson. You need to call me Gene. I'm like... Mr. Goldenson, if I call you Gene, my dad is going to come and say, what's wrong with you? So I can't do that. You're just going to be Mr. Goldenson to me, and, and that's it. Uh, but in any event, you know, one of his big regrets in life, he told me, was that he was asked to be a prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials to go as a Jewish lawyer and to prosecute Nazi war criminals. And he didn't do it. He's like, no, I wanted to get on with my life and start my practice. And he's like, I missed it. I could have done it. But he became my friend. For like two years, I went to lunch almost every day with Gene Goldenson. And every time I had a question, which was every day several times, I just went to Gene because, I mean, he had nothing to do. He came in. He was single. He was never married. He had no kids. He had a niece that he loved and who loved him, and that was great, but that was it. And so he would take the train in and out, back and forth from his apartment, and he would just come in and he would take a nap. I mean, he slept for like an hour in his chair. It was, it was unbelievable. I don't sleep that well in my bed. And he would read all the new case law that came out because I don't know why. He was bored. He was interested. And he had like three cases, three, that he milked the heck out of. Basically, he probably did them for free. They were four friends, and they just gave him something to do. And I think he came in to have lunch with me. And so, you know... So we would have lunch every day, and I remember having lunch with him one day. I, could, I mean, I don't know if the restaurant's still there. This is like 30 years ago, but I could take you there. I could put you in the booth. I could show you where I'm sitting, where he's sitting. I can see it like a picture in my mind, and it was a Monday. Here's why I know that, because he said, hey, what did you guys do in the, over the weekend? You know, because he knew Beth at this point. Like when Morgan was born, he bought us the most beautiful, expensive outfit for her, had it perfectly wrapped, and he was so excited. It was like he was granddad. It was cool. He's like, what did you guys do this weekend? And I said, well, you know, we did this and we did this and we went to church and we didn't. And he's like, oh, well, tell me about that. So we got into this conversation about faith, mostly him talking to me about what he thinks and, you know, how he was raised and all of that. And I could feel the Holy Spirit in me saying, Tom, you need to say something to this man about Jesus, you know? And I mean, I was not like the most devout follower of Jesus at that point, but I was a believer and I was going to church and whatever. And I thought to myself, Eh, maybe another time. So I didn't want to do it. So anyway, we have Morgan. We move to Florida. And then the next time that I hear about Mr. Goldenson, it's a phone call from somebody from that firm in Chicago. And they said, you know, Gene Goldenson was, had a major stroke. Um, they found him at the L station in the afternoon. He was on his way home. Uh, took him to the hospital. He's in an assisted living facility. And I said, well, give me the address, the name. I you know, wrote it all down. 
And I just immediately, I could see me in that booth with Gene Goldenson. And I thought, I'm not going to say what I thought. Darn it, but not that word. So I sat down and then I wrote this letter to Gene Goldenson. And I said, you know, Mr. Goldenson, here's what's going on. And I remember that day and we were sitting in that booth and I knew that God wanted me to say something to you. And I didn't do it. Here's what I should have said. And just in case it wasn't clear enough, I put a tract in there. I figured, you know, maybe they say it better than me. And I put like this little pamphlet, which was basically the gospel of John. Not basically, that's what it was. I put it in there and then I wrote like a personal note. I'm like, hey, I don't know who gets the mail in this place, but would you do me the favor? I mean, I don't know if he can read. I don't know if he takes his own mail. Like, I don't know really what his condition is. I've heard it's not good. Could somebody sit with this man and read the letter to him? I want him to get this message before he dies, in other words. So I wait like two weeks. I call the place. And it sounds a little chaotic. And, you know, I mean, there's, you don't know who's going to get the letter or who's going to get the mail or what part of the staff you're going to catch at what part of the day. And so anyway, this woman had no idea anything about the letter. She has no clue whether somebody read it to him, nothing. So I come home and I say to Beth, okay, we got to go to Chicago because I'm going to go see Gene Goldenson. So we bought plane tickets and we flew to Chicago. We stayed with some friends of ours. And the next morning I went and I went to go see Gene Goldenson. And it was a pain. There was no Google Maps, nothing. You know, like I had to take a train and I'm it's freezing, you know, like. So I walk into this place and it's okay-ish. There was ice on the inside of his room window. I didn't think that was encouraging. And I go in the room where he is and there are two men in the room. And honestly, guys, I didn't know which one he was. So I came out. I said, look, I... I had lunch with this guy every day for two years. I, I cannot tell you who's who. They say he's the first one. I said, okay. So I kind of touched his arm or whatever. I said, Mr. Goldenson. And he woke up, and I could tell he's trying to focus on me. And, you know, I mean, I'm the last guy he's expecting to see. He thinks I'm in Florida. So I'm like, it's me, and I came to see you. And, you know, like I'm, He's trying to tell me something desperately, but because of the stroke, I can literally not understand one syllable of what he's trying to say. And I just said to him, look, Mr. G, I said, you know, I know that this is really frustrating to you, and I'm so sorry. I can't understand what you're saying. I said, but you know what? The reality is I came here to talk to you anyway, so just relax and let me do the talking. And so I start to talk with him. We're three minutes in, all of that, and then I'm starting to talk with him, and I'm getting to the... Here's why I'm here. Remember, we were sitting in the booth, and da, 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 we started talking about religion, and, and he starts to snore. He falls dead asleep. And I panic. I'm like, what the heck? You know, like, and I'm trying to wake him up, and he is not waking up. Like, I'm like, you know, I don't want to shake him too hard, but I'm like, you know, Mr. Goldenson, Mr. Goldenson shaking his arm. He's out. I go in a panic out to the nurse's station. I'm like, listen, I came here from Florida. I got a message to deliver. (laughs) This is why I'm here. I'm just starting to get to it. He falls asleep. How long does he sleep? They say he sleeps 24 hours a day. He just wakes up a few minutes here and a few minutes there. I said, well, how long is it between here and there? They're like, could be tomorrow. Like, I'm on a plane tomorrow. So I go back in his room. I try to wake him again. I sit there for a while, 
Nothing. I try to wake him again. I say he he never wakes up. So I fly home. It's not how you thought the story was going to go, is it? You figured for sure Gene Goldenson comes to faith in Jesus. People at the nursing station, they overhear it. Now they're crying. They come to faith in Jesus. The man in the bed next to him gets up and is healed. You know, like (laughs) revival breaks out in the assisted living facility and none of that. That's the whole story. Didn't happen. And look. I'm a big believer, and I think the Bible backs this up, that God always gets his person. And maybe what he was trying to tell me, I don't know, but I couldn't understand it, was, hey, I got your letter. (laughs) You know, thank you for sending that. Maybe somebody else, some pastor came and visited him, some friend of his came and visited him, somebody else shared the God that caught him in his three-minute window of I'm awake. I don't know. Maybe he came to faith even before he had the stroke because somebody shared the God. I don't know. All I know is I'm sitting in a booth with this guy and I'm feeling like the Lord is saying, come on, man, I have teed this up. It is, it is there. And I passed. I don't want to do that again. I don't want you to do that. And Jesus looks at the faith of these guys. These guys didn't even think about waiting. Like it wasn't even on a menu of options. Well, so here's some options. You can pitch your tent here and wait for Jesus to finish his message and whatever. And then when he comes out, boom, you're the first people there. I mean, that would have been a pretty reasonable plan. They didn't even consider that apparently. They're like, no. Faith says Jesus can fix this. Love says we're going to find a way and we're going to do it right now. They go up on the roof, they rip it open, they lower the guy, and far from being irritated, Jesus is delighted in the faith of these men. So much so, in verse 5, it says, and when Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. He said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, then a party broke out on the roof, right? These guys started high five. They're running across and, you know, chest bumping, you know, like, because this is better than what they came for. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even know that was on the table. You mean that could happen? Wow. They're high, you know, like all everybody inside's cheering. Oh, sense of the paralyzed guy, still paralyzed. You know, he's, he's excited. He's shouting. None of that happened. They didn't bring him there for that. Your sins are forgiven until the rest of the story plays out. Almost sounds like a cop-out. It's like, well, I can heal leprosy, but this is kind of intense. But wait a minute, who is Jesus? He is God. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins, therefore Jesus is God, which, by the way, also means that he spoke the worlds into being. So I'm thinking this is really not above his pay grade. Nothing is. No one is, but he's the only one in the room who knows that at this point. He's going to make it known. He's not going all spiritual on them and going, your sins are forgiven. Nobody can really verify that. And I will leave this man in his condition, but you guys should be happy with this. None of that. He is dealing with this man's greatest affliction, which kind of puts it in perspective, does it not? Because you're thinking paralysis, first century Forgiveness in eternity, the life to come, abundant life in this life. 
The failure to have this is the far more perilous condition. It's definitely the one that lasts the longest. It goes on for forever. Jesus says, my son, your, your sins are forgiven and nobody is happy, especially not the scribes. In verse 6, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They're thinking around Jesus, always dangerous. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Why? For who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is at least claiming to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is at least claiming to be God. And so immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise? That's the language of resurrection, by the way. Take up your bed and walk. And don't answer that too quickly. Because in order to say your sins are forgiven, Jesus later had to go to a cross and be nailed to it. He is immobilized. And so immediately, Jesus perceiving in his heart, he's like, guys, why do you question this? Look at what it says. It says, he goes on, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, and therefore that I, that I am God. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then this man who's been paralyzed, like he does that. You know, it's not like he regains feeling and sensation and he's able to move and wiggle his toes and and his fingers and he's able to all of a sudden, he can kind of, and then he has to go to a rehab facility and then they have to kind of work him back into shape and he's going to walk on a treadmill with a belt that kind of takes some of the weight off until his legs have enough strength to bear the fullness of his weight and then eventually, I don't know, six or eight months down the road, he's able to rise and take up his bed and walk. It's just complete. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I'll bet. Jesus is the one who alone can forgive sins. Why? Because he's God. And as a result, we need to bring ourselves and others to him. So let me ask you, like, what sin or sins do you need to have forgiven? Because there is a forgiver. It's amazing. And not only does he forgive it, not only does he wash it away, not only does he make you clean, he redeems it. He takes all of your failures and all of your mistakes and all of the ways that you've messed things up and somehow brings good out of them. I mean, maybe I messed up with Gene Goldenson because now 50 of you will not do that. I don't know. I just know that he takes that which is broken and he fixes it, that which has failed, and he brings success, that which is tragic. And out of it, he brings triumph. He is the overcoming Christ. So what sin or sins do you need to have forgiven? And will you bring them to him? Because he just waits for you. Secondly, what is immobilizing you in this moment? What is it that's paralyzing you, if anything? You might be, no, 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 I'm good. It could be the shock of divorce. It could be the numbness of the death of the loss of somebody that you love. It could be the heavy load of depression, the unrelenting beatdown of anxiety. It could be self-doubt or self-loathing. It could be a secret or maybe not secret at all addiction. What is immobilizing you and will you bring that to Jesus? Because I can't fix that and you can't fix that. But he's offering himself to us and he's going, hey, 
I'm different. Thirdly, what dead thing in your life needs to be lowered down into the grave, if you will, in faith so that Jesus can raise it up again? I think that could be a relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be a relationship with a child, a son, a daughter. It could be a hope, a dream, like something that's died and that is hopeless apart from the power of Christ. And then here's the last one. Who do you need to carry to the Lord this morning or for that matter this afternoon or maybe just this week? Who's your Gene Goldenson? Who is that person for you? God has given you the relationship. You're invested in the relationship. Hey, you know what? If you talked about this, they're not going to be upset with you. If I had talked about it, Gene would have gone, oh, well, that's interesting. And if he didn't want to, you know, participate, he would have said, well, that's nice for you, Tom, and let's move on. You know, like at some point, I think that the people in our lives if they have some semblance of an understanding of what Christianity is, what it is that we profess to believe, heaven and hell and all of this Jesus and salvation, if we don't say something, they're going, okay, either you don't believe this or you don't love me like you're commanded to, which is like yourself. If you think about it that way, what would you want that person to do for you if the shoe was on the other foot? You'd be like, I mean, even if I don't want to hear it, I want you to tell me about it. And the relationship's there. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm not going to be your friend after this. So who do you need to carry to the Lord this morning in prayer and then maybe in person? Go have lunch. Go sit in a booth. Don't make my mistake, really. Invite them to Alpha. Come with them. Just don't say anything if you come because you got to understand the philosophy of Alpha. Let them talk. Who is it for you? Because if you and I really believe that Jesus can raise the dead, spiritually, physically, all of it, and we love people like ourselves, man, we're going to do it. Like we'll run into the obstacles and faith is going to go, yeah, but you know, if you can get them to Jesus and love's going to say, yeah, we got to find a way. We got to find a way. So find a way. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you that you have found and made a way for us. That you didn't look down upon us and go, eh, I don't know. Maybe they'll figure it out. You knew that we would not. That we are utterly and completely undeserving of your love, that you have given us your love in the person of Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross, we see the value that you place on us and the love that you have for us, one who has lived and suffered, been buried and who is risen, who gives us the gift of your spirit. And Lord, we need your spirit. We pray that you would fill us, Holy Spirit. Come and empower us to do what in our flesh we're we're, we're too nervous to do. Overwhelm and overcome these things and let us know the joy of participating in your work, a work that goes on forever. We bring our sins to you this morning, God. We lay them before the one who alone forgives and claim in faith his forgiveness for our sins and his lordship over our lives. We bring the dead things that are a part of our lives that we have no hope for at this point. And left to ourselves, we have no reason for hope. But in you, there is always hope. We lay them before you and we lay these people that you've brought into our lives too. That you would give us love for them and faith and courage. 
God, that we might be your hands and your feet and arms and legs and voice to carry them to Jesus. Let us have that honor and share in that joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.